But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us this week from Biden's America, it's Jason Wilson. How are you, Jason? I'm very well, gentlemen. Nice to be here. Speaking on behalf of yourself or on behalf of an organization? Uh, Just myself, as always. Jason, there's been a lot going on. We last spoke to you in May. Oh, wow. It's been that long? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Uh, there's been a lot going on. Since then, uh, one thing that happened was was the five-year anniversary of Charlottesville, which you were at. I was wondering what your reflections were upon Charlottesville five years later. They were kind of not, they were fairly somewhat pessimistic, I got to say, just in the sense that the rhetoric and the kind of open, far-right organizing that was so shocking to mainstream opinion when it first, millions of people first understood what was going on around that time. It just, I mean, the other thing that's been going on, or one of the other things that's been going on, several trials in relation to January 6th, including that of Oath Keepers founder, Stuart Rhodes. You know, there's a very real sense in which none of the sort of contentious and and or violent far-right street protests that, you know, Charlottesville was a kind of early example of, that, like that, none of that really stopped after Charlottesville. Maybe it was different groups. Maybe it, were, it was groups that were careful not to, to, to very explicitly disavow fascism or, or, or Nazism or whatever. Groups like the Proud Boys, groups like Patriot Prayer here in Portland. That stuff just kept rolling on, and then in 2021 at, at the Capitol, you know, it it happened there, and and that that was completely unsurprising, really, to anyone who had been taking notice of what was going on. And in fact, those guys had done it in a number of state houses in in the in the weeks leading up to to that event. And yeah, I mean, people were outraged when Charlottesville happened, but it just didn't seem to really kind of change that trajectory, uh, at least in the sense of elected officials law enforcement agencies didn't really recognize at the time that Charlottesville happened that the, that this was a movement, you know, a set of conditions that wasn't just going to go away because people were outraged. From the mayor of Portland to state governors to, to national Democrats, like no one really, let alone Republicans, no one really drew any lines in the sand after Charlottesville. And, and, and that's apart from the murder of Heather Heyer and you know, the many other people who were badly hurt, some of them that day. And apart from the, the spectacle of that happening in, in an American city, the, the other tragedy was that, that really Charlottesville didn't really kind of lead to any sort of consistent response from those with the power to do something. Didn't lead to any sense of urgency from anyone with the power to do anything. And it might seem like all of that is kind of uh, it's less prominent now, but uh, it, it seems to me that there's still in-person uh, street protests and, and stuff happening. There are people who are harassing doctors, you know, in hospitals and libraries uh, because of far-right disinformation, telling them that all kinds of horrible things are going on in these places, like 
I, I guess we talked if we talked in May, that was that was just before thirty one members of Patriot Front got arrested in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, right? Where they were going mm. to they were going to try to disrupt a pride event there. And and people can't seem to see either A, the continuities between the people who are carrying out transphobic and homophobic harassment campaigns or or showing up at pride events, showing up at libraries, you know, shutting things down. They can't see the continuities between that and Charlottesville. They can't see that there's there's actually a pretty big overlap in in who's who's doing that stuff uh, between people doing that stuff now and and what happened in Charlottesville. I mean, I know there's one particular actor in Idaho who runs a website and and has this kind of national network of people who uh, you know he can activate and you know libs of tip, TikTok have taken up his cause from now and again. And and this guy was literally at Charlottesville. He he marched at Charlottesville. So. Those continuities have not been noted or certainly not acted on or there's been no kind of consistent effective response to any of that. And it, it seems to me that when the next time that these folks have the cover afforded by their party having state power at the federal level, controlling the federal government, they're going to they're going to redouble all of those efforts and probably you know the department of justice is not is going to be in different hands and they're not going to pursue that stuff in the same kind of way so that's they were my reflections really that that Charlottesville unfortunately Charlottesville could have been really an inflection point and and 5 years later it would have been great if we were, were able to say and, and this is not to at all cast any kind of doubt on the bravery of of the people who showed up to to counter protest that and it's not to say that they didn't do what they could but it it could have been an inflection point in terms of the way in which this country deals with the far right and deals with this violent you know authoritarian uh, hateful movement that's that's still around but yeah it it, it wasn't that and it's kind of like it, it wasn't like it was this. There was some kind of large scale effort that failed, right? Like, like pe- people just by and large, you know, just didn't do much. Certainly not people with with power. Jason, it was only a little after the fifth anniversary, I think, at the beginning of September or thereabouts, that Joe Biden made an observation that Trumpism was a form of semi-fascism. Do you think this is accurate, and do you think this represents? the kind of recognition on the part of the government as to the seriousness of the threat posed to American democracy by these sorts of ideas and movements. I will say that I was really happy to hear him say that because I think that there has been a reluctance on the part of the Democrats, which are the one the one unambiguously non-fascist party of of government in the United States, whatever else we want, whatever we might want to say about the way in which bipartisan policy around the border and stuff like that has contributed to this mess. I think for electoral reasons, previously, Democrats have been reluctant to call out what's going on in the Republican Party in that way. And I I was happy to hear him say that. Of course, I'm conscious that he's trying to fight a midterm election. But even so, I think that in recent history, Democrats have been far more focused on trying to sort of not offend sort of moderate or not scare moderate Republicans who, who they might be able to carve off into an electoral coalition, you know, by by drawing these kinds of lines and, 
you know, for whatever it's worth, I'm I'm pretty glad that he he said that because I don't know what you guys think specifically of semi-fascist as a, you know, whether that's perhaps uh, pulling his punches a little or, or what you think about it as a term. But I think that he, yeah, I think it was an effective speech. Yeah, I, another phrase he used in that speech was MAGA Republicans. You know, like I'm, I'm not kind of like I'm not talking about all Republicans, just these MAGA Republicans kind of thing. I suppose some people might have seen that as equivocation as well, and you know maybe it is. But but the one thing it did was got all of these kind of like pro-Trump folks on social to like identify themselves as MAGA Republicans. You know, to identify themselves as the people Biden was talking about, and and then thus to invite people, I guess, to, to consider whether they really wanted to be, you know, seen as anything like these folks. I, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, uh, uh, you know, as to how it looked from the outside. Like, I, it, it seems to me like it's just words, right? It's just rhetoric, but it's rhetoric that is unambiguously saying these people are a problem for democracy and, you know, we need to address that. Yes, it's in the lead up to a, to a midterm election, but him wanting to do his job and to limit the electoral prospects of far-right candidates is, I mean, if it works, it, you know, I guess I, I won't complain about that. But I'm curious about how it looked from Australia. I was struck by the fact that the F word had been employed. I would consider Trumpism to be, uh, I'd describe it as a proto-fascist movement. It's a, a form of fascism that's undergoing development. I think it drew a line, or at least that was seemed to be Biden's intent, um, and to place some pressure on so-called moderates within the Republicans. I don't know if it would have been or was very successful, So, but I guess that will be borne out by the uh, election results. I think I'm also, I think of the fact that, or what was the response to uh, Maloney's triumph in Italy and the commentary by many self-described conservatives, which uh, proclaimed many of them they could see nothing at issue with the program or the politics of the brothers in Italy, and therefore it would be wrong to describe it as fascist because it actually converges with their own so-called conservative view of the world. So I think there's a kind of, on the whole, there's a kind of convergence taking place. And I think I'm not sure that, I mean, when I think of Biden as a person, I think of a uh, an elderly, slightly doddering figure who represents a kind of uh, weakened political liberalism that is subject to bullying. And um, I think on the in terms of politics as performance, that seems to be what is happening. And I think Trump excels at that sort of thing, as do other demagogues. Um, they delight in um, ridiculing these figures, recasting their commitment to procedural democracy as a form of weakness and taking advantage of it. In terms of US politics, I think the it seems to be the main cleavage is between those who advocate for reproductive freedom and those who oppose it. And it seems to be the case that a majority of US citizens and presumably voters uh, favour reproductive freedom. And maybe that's a more fruitful way of, of combating these kinds of reactionary tendencies. That's my kind of hot take. <laughs> I don't know. What do yeah. you think? No, it could be. I mean, and maybe... Maybe from my point of view in doing the kind of work I do in in the States, like maybe I was excessively grateful just to, to, to get the sense that they do actually get it, right? That the Democrats do actually understand that there's something going on. Because certainly I've doubted that 
<laughs> at, at times, that they, they really understood how serious this problem was. I just, I mean, the other thing about the, the national leadership of the Democratic Party, you know, I, I think the average age of a, a, a United States senator is well into the 70s. And, and this isn't ageism, but these folks have been around for a long time. You know, someone like Dianne Feinstein, who's, I think, 90. They've been doing politics for Nancy Pelosi, I believe. She's 80. Oh, don't take my word for that, but she's she's getting up there. And they've been doing politics in, for a long time during a period of, I would say, unusual institutional stability. Let's put it that way. It's not that there was total social peace or you know political comity during that period, but a lot of institutions more or less functioned in the way that liberals and Democrats kind of said that they did, for better or worse. And I'm just not sure if you can do that for 30 or 40 years, like like Joe Biden has. He's been there since the Watergate election, I think. So almost 50 years. I, I don't know if you can just flick a switch when you've been doing something for that long and, and just create an effective emergency response to an insurgent anti-democratic movement, you know, which is millions of people strong at this point. So, and 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 there were times when I just thought that those people are kind of so remote from, from the stuff I'm seeing every day, you know, from just having to deal with everyday life in the United States, because a lot of them are also extremely wealthy people. I, I just didn't think they got it. And, and maybe Biden's speech, I was, as I was saying, excessively grateful for, because I just thought, well, at least he's talking about it. But you're right. I mean, uh, is it a politically salient message? Compared to the, like the fact that the Supreme Court reversed uh, itself on on, a women, on women's rights to abortion, maybe not. But you know, I mean, I think that speaking of abortion, I guess the biggest thing that's happening, I think, currently on the far right is in the United States is this kind of transphobic and and ultimately homophobic as well campaign against hospitals that carry out gender-affirming care, that offer gender-affirming care to kids who are figuring out stuff with respect to their gender. They're attacking drag shows, which have been going on unremarked on, you know, for quite a long time. This is not a a new development, right? But it's being treated like some kind of emergency, which is connected in, in conspiracy theory to a, a, a like nationwide network of of, of ped- supposed pedophiles. So attacks on hospitals, on libraries. So so getting books banned about critical race theory and about anything that touches on the subject of uh, you know transgender kind of issues. All put together with this idea of that there are groomers, people sexually grooming minors in these. Uh, very public ways all, all, all across the country. That's the biggest thing that's happening. And the connection with reproductive rights here is that people are showing themselves to be extremely prepared on the basis of a bunch of nonsense to harass doctors and nurses, to physically show up at public facilities like hospitals and schools and libraries, to, to physically confront uh, the people who they believe are preying on children. I mean, when this, you know, when this abortion stuff really starts to heat up, and some states have completely shut it down, and others are continuing uh, to to provide for abortions to happen, 
and maybe you know people start crossing straight state lines in order to have an abortion i mean this is a a movement that is is it's not i don't think it's going to have a problem shifting gears from showing up at libraries and picking fights to showing up at abortion clinics and picking fights and then suddenly you know and every election showing up at county clerk's offices or wherever people are counting votes to to confront people there I mean, this this is like January 6th was obviously extremely troubling to these politicians because they personally experienced it. But there's when it comes down to it, right, it was it was an attack on a on a public building Uh, and and similar kinds of things are happening weekly uh, across the country. You know, similar kinds of people showing a similar preparedness to to go to public places in order to confront their imagined enemies. I, I, I don't like words like insurgency because of their connection with, I suppose, the the, the counterinsurgency doctrines that crept up during the, the, the war on terror and the invasion of Iraq. I don't, I don't, that word's unfortunately contaminated now, but, but there's something like that in the, in the beginning stages, right? Like in, in this kind of movement, in what it's doing, it's it, th- those of us who, who sort of work in this sector, you know, I know that there's this, um, there's this term for a certain strain of far right thinking, which is anti-government. You know that that the organisation I work for uses, and and others use, and and law enforcement has also used in the past. This idea of anti-government groups is a specific strain of far right ideology. It feels slightly quaint at this point to say that that's just one among many strands of militancy on the far right, right? Because it's like. Not all, obviously, not all hospitals are run by the government. Literally, run by the government here. Not many of them are at all. But they're they're public facilities, right? Uh, the, the the sort of uh, across the far right, uh, and and the far right is now much much larger than it was. You know, in terms of as a movement uh, across the far right, there there is this pre- pre- obvious preparedness to to attack public spaces, to attack the idea of a a, a shared public space, to a t- certainly a, a, a complete intolerance for uh, different values to their own to the extent that the people who hold those values are defined as a, a danger. I mean, if you really think that, I don't know, all Democrats are groomers, if you really think that, well, then how can you live in a society with those people, right? Like, like that's got to be intolerable, right? Like if you think that half the country a group, you know, are interested or apologising for organised child abuse. I mean, how can how can you live in in the the same country with those people? And that's that that's where you. The idea that it's it's the out group. You know, I, I'm sure you guys have read J.M. Berger's stuff. You know, like I don't know what you think of it, but you know, his sort of definition of extremism as an in group whose identity is partly built on their sort of hatred for an out group and and. And the belief that you know it's just not possible to to share a society with that outgroup. I mean, that's you're on your way to a really really super dark place, right? If you if you kind of combine that with state power, I did see a tweet from a, a like a MAGA Republican, uh, I think Senate candidate uh, earlier in the week, which was essentially, uh, I'm sure progressives have good intentions brackets but they don't ever uh but everything they do is bringing us towards a ccp <laughs> government and it's like even like the beginning was you know an attempt to reach across the aisle that was immediately just discarded 
Right, right. Well, well, and that's the other part of this, right? I mean, I saw a video with Marjorie Taylor Greene, and it, I guess it was an event, uh, the Save America rally, I think it was called, happened yesterday, I think, or perhaps it was today. Anyway, uh, as we're recording this, you know, I saw in this video that she said, and I, I, no, no way is she, was she saying this for the first time, but but it just re- it's a reminder, like you know, basically telling the person interviewing her that 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 Democrats want to kill Republicans, like that's that's what they're all about. You know, like they're going to kill us all. So that the other part, right? Like these people are evil. Like how can we live in the same system? And and they want to kill all of us, right? Like it's just setting up a mindset that doesn't that doesn't need to be an electoral majority in order to destroy a democracy, right? I mean, you don't you don't need that many people to to be of that mind in order to just just have any kind of liberal democracy totally break down. And I don't think people are, I don't think enough people are making the connections like that, that, you know, to go back to Charlottesville, like all along, this has been the same mutating movement. I mean, some people drop off, some new people get picked up. Um, maybe the, it's certainly expanded. You know, there are more and more people who are persuaded by these sorts of ideas. At least, it, you know, if we consider that, a lot of this stuff is now becoming Republican Party policy, effectively. So, yeah, I, I I think the leadership on if 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 liberal democracy is going to survive in the United States, someone's going to need to want it to, and they're going to need to address it very energetically, right? And I I'm not seeing enough energy <laughs> from the people who have the power to actually kind of set policy and you know, set directions and, and draw meaningful lines, uh, you know. And, and look, the thing is that I think that the reality is that this is still, you need to still take it seriously, like I just said, but this is a minority of Americans. It's maybe, you know, the number 20, 25% comes up in a lot of different contexts as the people who believe the worst stuff, support the worst politicians unflaggingly. You know, like that was about the size of the hardcore Trump base. You'll find that that number is also the number of people who, well, maybe that, maybe not will say yes to Q, but, you know, will say yes to a whole bunch of authoritarian far-right ideals, ideas. And I, I think that, that also that cohort is disproportionately an older one. But be that as it may, I mean, this stuff will always come up, right? There, it just seems like, uh, certainly in modern history, it seems like these movements crop up from time to time. But the fact that uh, it's, it's going to be really hard for them to impose their will on such a, such a big and diverse kind of nation, maybe that just means even more fractures and, and divisions will be necessary down the line. I'm not sure. But, but I, I think... It's probably the case that you know authoritarians, fascists, whatever, are always like a minority, right? And they always kind of exhaust themselves because you know, a lot of the time they just can't govern rationally. But I don't know. I mean, they can do a lot of damage on the way, right? The thing is that Trump is almost beside the point at the moment, right? I, I think that the Republican Party has finally figured out how to do the thing that they wanted to do from the start, which was kind of shut down Trump and and or, or control him. And what they're going to do, I think, is run Ron DeSantis, who is able to deliver a kind of political performance that is appealing to the Trump coalition, but he doesn't come with the baggage that Trump does. I mean, Trump's 
his his election was kind of in some ways it, it you know it should never have been that close of course ever ever should it should never have been that close but his first election was kind of a fluke and then the midterms in 2018 were a disaster and then he lost in 2020 like i don't i'm not concerned about him winning another election and i, I kind of have to think he probably he might make a show of running for a while but i i don't know that he would ever be the republican nominee again like he's just not it's not 2016 anymore and i think people do even among republicans they you know they figured out something i think and and i think they'll they'll probably run DeSantis, you know, DeSantis will probably get there. And, and and there are people who are clearly trying to set that up. So that that stunt that DeSantis ran when he, where he sent a number of Venezuelan immigrants to, to uh, Martha's Vineyard, which is a kind of wealthy person's holiday spot, uh, you know, on the East Coast, where, you know, a lot of a lot of wealthy, powerful people, many of whom are seen as liberals, you know, by 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 Republicans live. And and, you know, it was obviously this kind of trolling exercise, right? But it's exactly it's exactly hitting the sentiments that Trump hits, you know, whenever he talks. But also it was a much more sophisticated thing than Trump would ever have thought to do, right? To sort of arrange this media circus around owning the libs by chartering a plane and and sending these people like and and DeSantis also sent along you know film a film crew apparently um to capture the impact of this so yeah i don't i don't, i don't i'm not worried about trump winning an election i i kind of think i kind of think he's done but his movement isn't and the republican party are still beholden to that movement to the extent that yeah i think they're going to run this candidate basically because if they don't run someone sufficiently Trumpy, well, they just have to. I mean, that's what their voters are clearly going to demand. So, you know, that's I guess that's the way I see it. I don't have a crystal ball, obviously, and I could be wrong. But that yeah, we'll, looks, we'll be playing that audio at Trump will yeah. run again. <laughs> well, put it this way: it looks like it looks to me, and perhaps you agree, it looks to me like that's what people are trying to put together. And I and I also think that Trump is now kind of damaged in a way that he never was from 2015 on. Like he, this stuff about the documents at Mar-a-Lago, like that, that's weird. Him being on Truth Social now, uh, like it, he, even his supporters, I think there, there's a kind of weakness there that has never been there before. He's kind of starting to seem a bit shrill. I just have a vibe. And I, I, I think it's obvious that DeSantis is getting ready to run and that there are people in conservative media, especially who are supportive of that. Um, and that's probably all that, all that matters right now. Oh, I think that you know Trump might not have had the nous to pull a stunt like that, but I also think Trump probably would have an advisor who could tell him, don't film your kidnappings. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I mean, y- yeah. I mean, that was, well, I mean, DeSantis might, might have made the judgment that who, who cares? I mean, t- He's not going to get dragged into court in Texas. Like that just wouldn't have entered into his mind. And and that's the other thing that Trump has really unleashed, which is just this kind of but by, by just sort of mocking and destroying every convention, as empty as liberal conventions may be, he has encouraged this attitude of total impunity, you know, throughout his movement, throughout the Republican Party. Like if there isn't 
an actual literal law saying you can't do something. And even if there is, just call that bluff. You know, it'll probably be fine. And I'm sure this will be. I, You know, I don't think DeSantis personally is going to face a single consequence for th- these, this allegation of kidnapping. But yeah, I, I just don't think Trump, Trump wouldn't be able to put something like that together. And, you know, you might say he, he never needed to because he could just have a rally and say a bunch of stuff and get on the news anyway, right? But DeSantis, that's DeSantis trying to become a national figure for sure. Jason, what do you make of uh, uh, Kanye's chances? And what do you make of his recent media performances? I mean, I, I don't know what to say about that guy. I Like, I think throughout my life, in my memory, there have always been figures in popular culture who just, you know, figure out that controversy works for them and they just cynically hammer that over and over again, right? Like, I don't know, maybe Madonna in an earlier decade or whatever. Like, there's tons of examples, right? People who just figure out that, yeah, if I if I say something controversial, there's kind of no such thing as bad publicity for me. It just all, you know, augments my existing fame and draws attention to whatever I'm trying to sell right now. But I think there's a complication with Kanye. Like, I think he's trying to do that, but I also think that he has some very public issues. I, I mean, <laughs> I, th- I think that that sort of uh, anti-Semitism is unfortunately – uh, something that happens in particular communities of, of African Americans. I mean, the, the Nation of Islam is one example there, and and but obviously, by, by no means is it, do they have a monopoly on it. I mean, anti-Semitism is basically hot on the heels of any conspiracy theory that anyone of any cultural or racial group might might you know fixate on, right? But but the, his particular articulation of it, I think, is a kind of garbled version of, you know, maybe some some ideas adjacent to the nation of Islam. I'm not sure, but you know, it's oh, it's yeah, not garbled is sort of generous. It's it's not his own creation. Like that that, that chain of associations is not Kanye West's, you know, creation. Is, is all I'm trying to say. Like he's drawing on something existing, but he's drawing it on a way that seems like to me like. Someone who is not doing so well and someone who is not who has run out of ways to leverage controversy into attention, right? I mean, I, I just sort of it's a bit sad, really. It's obviously in saying that, I, I'm not, you know, in no way apologizing for the obvious anti Semitism, which also, you know, people on the right tried to b- bail him out on, you know, people were saying somehow that wasn't anti-Semitism or that, you know, the left just can't tolerate independent thinkers or whatever, right? Like, And uh, well, that's... They, they sort of went on a journey because I think he'd said something like just before he got into the anti-Semitic stuff and so he was sort of briefly became a cause celeb for people like oh, uh, yeah. Tucker Carlson. Right. Then he, he drops this stuff and they can't get away from it fast enough. But then there are other people on the right who are like, this is our opportunity. But then you also have the thing where it's like part of his idea is that, you know, there's this Jewish cabal that is supporting Drake. <laughs> and so it's like, what can you do with that? If- yeah. I, it's and, and the stuff about like how black people are really Jewish and stuff. Like it's very, um, yeah, it's the kind of thing that you could probably get by mail order back, you know, before the internet. Like it, 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 it's got that like dusty sort of whiff of 
some kind of like <laughs> you know Christian identity, some you know British Israelist guy or whatever. Like it's 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 very strange stuff, and it's not like just a normal unreflexive bad take, right? It's like there's inverted commas research right behind that. <laughs> so I just don't. I just doubt that he's like on the evidence of those tweets. It's not like just simple baiting and trolling. It's it's it it's to to me it looks like evidence of you know some some kind of mental health issue which he he's 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 known to have experienced in the past and I think that it's one of those situations where it's really unfortunate that it needs to be addressed I think it does because he's already so prominent but like you know it's also reinforcing that somewhat by giving him what he wants in terms of he did get a lot of attention. A lot of people noticed Kanye said something. Um, And I don't know, like, it's unfortunate that what seems to be a drama that is at least in part a kind of a drama about individual problems, right? Like someone's individual concrete issues has played into everything else we've been talking about up until now, right? I mean, that he's been now adopted as this kind of MAGA celebrity in a way that causes so much whiplash that a couple of couple of days later you've got Republicans, you know, minimizing anti Semitism publicly. I mean, I you know, what do you even say about that? Like it's just it's just another artifact of not my favorite period in human history. <laughs> I'm just returning to the the, the speech. Uh, yeah. if I'm if I might offer a dissenting opinion to uh, Andy, vote blue, no matter who, Fleming. And I thought the f- the first bit of the speech was good, mm. uh, but then the second half was sort of just pure nationalism, and he seemed to s- present this uh, vision of a you know the American dream being realised through infrastructure and a very wishy washy promise of doing something about the climate. Uh, and I'm not sure that a uh, you know building roads and sorting your recycling is going to address the you know, things like the corporate capture of the Democratic Party. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the, there was a whole discussion on the left that I kind of partly tuned into after after the infrastructure bill with, with, with all the climate stuff. And um, obviously there were people saying, this is a climate emergency. This doesn't go far enough. This is too much of a compromise with fossil fuel interests. And there were others who... In a, in a considered way, at least the examples I saw said, like, we're saying, if what you want to do on the left is influence policy at the national level, the vehicle for doing that is the Democratic Party. They've just passed a whole bunch of stuff, you know, that some of which is pretty good, and you guys don't know how to kind of claim your victories, basically. My expectations of American politics in general <laughs> have been perhaps clobbered so hard (laughs) and are now pretty low that I saw some merit in that second point of view. Like, and and for the same reason, I saw some merit in Biden's speech. It's like, well, he just said that a big chunk of the Republican party were fascists basically. Right. Like, like that's something, but yeah, I mean, in general, like I can't disagree with you, Cam, that like there, there, there weren't really any solutions on offer, right. Except we need to return to our, historic values and yeah re readopt civic nationalism you know the american civic religion and just be better 
right? And and yeah, some stuff about infrastructure. Like we're going to have some jobs for you all. And you know, even if he really kind of believes that he wants to do that, and I, I just I just don't know how a political the existing political system allows him to do much of that. Like he would need to do something radical. I mean, I think like packing the court was something that that radical and up, you know what I mean? Like for a start, you should pack the court so that, so that the the court doesn't just dismantle the administrative state, right? Like the court doesn't just hamstring it so much that, you know, and there, there are going to be fights over that sort of thing for sure. There is a body of opinion on the Supreme court that says that like, you can't just delegate authority, you know, to say the EPA, the environmental protection agency, you can't, Congress can't just say, well, Go and regulate, basically, you know, to simplify, in, in law, Congress basically says, you know, go regulate harmful chemicals and kind of leaves the determination of what hem- chemicals are harmful in what proportion to this agency, presumably staffed by experts, and then they go ahead and enforce that. You know, there's a, a body of opinion on on the Supreme Court that says Congress should ha- have to legislate in detail, you know, on, on which chemicals are banned. Right, because because giving that authority to a public agency is unconstitutional, right? And and that's going to be, you know, there are already cases before the court on that kind of issue. That's going to be a huge fight, and with the Supreme Court in the shape that it's in, probably there are going to be losses, you know, in that fight for people who think that government should function tolerably well. So, you know, like, like. And and there's no other way to address that, you know, unless uh, three or four people suddenly die, even then you, you might be unlucky. But if three or four people suddenly die and you've got Congress and you've got the capacity to appoint someone, you know, in time, that's the only other way to change that dynamic, right? And and they weren't prepared to do that because because there are a couple of Democrats who weren't prepared to do that in, in the Senate. Yeah. There's no real solutions like that are specific or radical enough to kind of push back on, you know, the broad dynamics of what's happening. What what should he do? I, I mean, I, I don't. <laughs> the other problem is, you know, I'm complaining about elected officials not fixing it, but I don't know. Is it the kind of problem that they can solve? I, I mean, some of the some of the solution could be informed by policy. I think there's like media policy in particular that could be made, which would somewhat hobble the capacity of these folks to propagandize so effectively. But I don't know. I mean, it's, I'm not saying I (laughs) have an ideal solution. I just didn't necessarily hear one in that, in that speech. So yeah, I I think, yes, you win, Cam. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps just finally, Jason, your old friend, Nick Adams, uh, (laughs) the alpha male, uh, has been just going off on Twitter. Uh, is he always getting numbers like this? I don't believe so. I mean, I, I think this is the best thing that's ever happened to him because, you know, I, I wrote about him like seven years ago. He had yeah. not long moved over here at that point. Um, just, just for our listeners who haven't heard of Nick Adams, perhaps could you tell us about why he is big now and then maybe remind us about who he used to be? Well, he's he's big now because he has been trying for for years and years and years to establish himself on the, you know, the kind of right wing circuit, right? Like to be speaking at conferences on conference panels, to be 
you know, invited onto Fox News to be, you know, on the kind of circuit that these folks are on, which is, you know, potentially quite lucrative. And certainly you'll be famous after a fashion, right? And and <laughs> he's quite shamelessly over that period pivoted from kind of being a Bush type conservative, like a kind of hawkish foreign policy type combined with, you know, bracing sort of uh, small government economics. And, and and the Christianity thing has always been a big part of uh, his his shtick, right? And that's still there. But now his whole thing is much more, not only much more Trumpy, but it's kind of um, uh, this sort of boneheaded, dial up to 10 kind of MR, bro MRA type thing, right? Like a, like a, a kind of, you know, in its more serious moments, maybe such as there are any, it's kind of talking about the restoration of the patriarchal family, right? But but mostly it's expressed in these like dunderheaded slogans, right, that he tweets out. And obviously uh, some folks on the left started noticing him uh, and, and, and yeah, he's getting dunked on and retweeted and dunked on by, you know, thousands and thousands of people. The trouble with that is that that kind of is good for him in some ways because it raises his profile. Like he doesn't care if you think he's an idiot. Like, what he cares about is evidence for his potential employers and clients that that the left really hates him. You know, like lefties really they they you know lefties are so triggered by by this guy. We need to get him. We need to get him on Laura Ingram or whatever, right? Like, but it's quite shameless. Like he's just sort of doctored his his shtick in keeping with. You know, the, I guess the passage, in keeping with what's happened to, to the Republican Party over the last seven years. Now he used to be, <laughs> he used to be, um, he was a, he started in politics as a young liberal, and and in Australia he was prominent for two things. He was briefly on Ashfield ca- uh, Council, Municipal Council in in Sydney, and his big idea there was to um, to kill all the pigeons. <laughs> And and you know like he 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 made this speech in front of the council where he said you know like I'm I'm not an expert I'm not a wildlife uh, expert I don't know how to kill the pigeons but I I, I just don't want to see them kind of thing. <laughs> it was almost this kind of like yeah that at that point he was almost like this weird Western Sydney version of like Jobiaka Peterson or something like it was just kind of like sub. Yeah, this this very stupid populism, I guess. And and then like he was on Media Watch. Now I'm not going to remember the details of this, but basically he did a um some kind of publicity stunt. Hang on. Here's what I said then. Uh, he ran into political like uh <laughs> he said that at the time, Asheville should be impos- inhospitable to pigeons at a council meeting. Avian influenza does not respect borders. I'm not an expert. I'm not an accountant. I'm certainly not a pest controller. Don't ask me about procedure. What I would like to see is no pigeons in our area. So Asheville would be the first municipality in the world with no pigeons, I guess. So that's that's pretty ambitious. He also denounced immigration, multiculturalism, of course, You know, while he was on Asheville Council, as if that council controls immigration. But then he started trying to launch himself as a motivational speaker and he stopped turning up at council meetings. Uh, and, and a journalist rang him up to say, you know, what's what's the story, Nick? And he, <laughs> he just, 
launched this tirade of abuse at the journalist and, and they got suspended from the Liberal Party. Now, he then, so this is all back, you know, in the early 2010s. He then turned up as a PR guy for something called the Halloween Institute. And I'll quote myself, quote, this was a fictional front group which organized a protest attended exclusively by paid lingerie models, got a whole lot of free media for a costume hire store and earned everyone who carried the story a deserved shellacking on Media Watch. So you can, you know, if you want to link readers to this, I've got to, also got a link to the Media Watch episode, which is quite amusing. So this guy's just, uh, you know, I mean... Uh, you know, I, I, it's a defamation territory. I, I, I'll let listeners come up with their own word for what this guy was when he was in Australia. But, you know, he gets over there. He gets, uh, you know, I guess a manager of some kind. He starts making these kind of patriotic sort of, in the you know, you, patriotic to America kind of videos. And, and part of his shtick has always been, you know, I'm an Australian by birth, but I'm an American by choice. This is the greatest country on earth. So, you know, the opposite of what you get from me, basically. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and like he's been toiling away at this for, for seven or eight years. And, and the reason I wrote about him is because I saw him speak at a conference called the Western Conservative Summit, which is like a Christian right conference that happens in Denver, Colorado every year. Uh, it's pretty big, and like when I was there, it was like all of the, basically all of the 2016 presidential hope, Republican presidential hopefuls spoke there, except for Trump. But like, uh, you know, uh, I, actually, I don't think Jeb Bush was there either. But you know, like, oh, that doctor, Seventh Day Venice guy, I've forgotten his name, the neurosurgeon. Anyway, he was there. All the presidential hopefuls were there, except except I guess for the people who were already the front runners. And yeah, this guy spoke and he spoke on a panel, which is like training wheels, I guess, in this thing. Like he didn't get his own podium, but he spoke with Raheem Kassam, who uh, at that point was editor-in-chief of Breitbart London and is now, you know, works for Steve Bannon basically and has a website called The National File, pretends to be an investigative journalist. And then he also worked for Nigel Farage. And then there was some other guy, Ben Harris Quinney from the Bow Group, which is like a you know, ultra uh, libertarian, like like small government kind of that that kind of right wing think tank in in the UK. Yeah, and, and so you know, I I didn't even I didn't really think about him again. Like he he popped his head up previously for some reason, which because I remember retweeting my story again, um, maybe last year sometime. But now, yeah, he's all over Twitter because of these these absurd sort of. Uh, masculinist tweets he's putting out there right and i mean i don't know the, the the idea of this guy kind of setting himself up as some kind of uh, uh, you know paragon of masculinity is i think part of what people are finding funny i'm not sure yeah I I not to get too personal but there's a disconnect yeah indeed so <laughs> it, it's 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 just um it's just another symptom i think of <laughs> Like the fact that this guy could get paid money, you know, for people, so people, because people want to hear him speak. He told Ashfield Council that they should execute all their pigeons. <laughs> he did it like a fake, fake news, like publicity stunt for Halloween. Like, I don't know. If he had stayed in Australia, I would like to think that he would not be on television or speaking at conferences, right? He'd be like, I don't know. I don't know what he'd be doing. Something in sales, I imagine. Oh, um, but. Oh. 
I wonder if he's laid out a roadmap that a uh, MP, outgoing MP Tim Smith, who wanted to kill all the bats to fix coronavirus, could follow. I mean, you know, what? It, look, anyone who is completely shameless, you know, um, and is just prepared to say or do literally anything, you know, has has a has a shake. Does that does that does is, does that fit Tim Smith? I'm not that familiar with his work. Uh, I think he probably had his moment in the in the spotlight after I left the country. But like, if Tim Smith can do that, he he should have a go because the streets are paved with gold. Obviously, well, Jason, if you have a go, you'll get a go. <laughs> there we go. A positive exactly. A positive note to end on for a change. Yeah. Well, Jason, thanks for joining us. People can, of course, follow you on Twitter at Jason underscore A underscore W. And we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, awesome. Cheers, guys. See you later. Well, that's our show. We'll catch you next week. Bye-bye. See you then. Throughout October, Vaka is hosting a series of rainbow yarning workshops for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. The workshops will include guest speakers presenting on a range of topics for LGBTIQA communities and support services. To take part, visit the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency's Facebook page to register. The Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency is a 3CR supporter.